Now, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to begin with a little pop quiz. I'm going to read some lyrics from a theme song of a movie. I want to see if you can identify the movie. These words were first heard in the opening credits to the movie and then became a theme song for all the following sequels. This is the song. You've got a friend in me. You've got a friend in me. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed, you just remember what your old pal said. Boy, you've got a friend in me. Yeah, you've got a friend in me. Anyone know the movie? Exactly. I could listen to that song a million times. Something about it just resonates with me. Now, here's another one. Only you spiritual giants of the faith will get this one. It's from a sitcom that ran in, from 1988 to 1993. It goes like this. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? First service got it right away. Lend me your ears and I'll sing you a song. And I'll try not to sing out of key, which is interesting since I'm singing. And then it goes like this. Oh, and I get, by, I get a little help. I get by with a little help from my friends. Oh, I get by with a little help from my friends. Anyone know the show? The Wonder Years. Very good. Very good. It starred Kevin Arnold. Um, that's who I thought I was growing up. It also starred Paul Pfeiffer. That's who I actually was growing up. <laughs> starred Winnie Cooper, a little TV crush of little boys everywhere. It's actually one of the only shows where the TV child stars didn't turn out totally messed up in real life. They all did well for themselves. Just like the first song, this song strikes a chord with me. I went through this phase a couple months ago where I just listened to it over and over again at the house. My wife would just walk into the room, shake her head, and walk out of the room. <laughs> I just like songs about friendship. I think that show had the best secular quote on friendship in history. Kevin said, Some people pass through your life and you never think about them again. Some you think about and wonder whatever happened to them. Some you wonder if they ever wonder what happened to you. And then there are some you wish you never had to think about again. But you do. You know why those songs grip me and have gripped millions of people? Because God built the crave for friendship into our souls. You were made for friendship. Not just any friendship, but Christ-centered friendships. Before creation, before time, in the beginning, one member of the Trinity said to another, Let us make man in our image. One of the implications of being made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, is that we are meant for friendships. The doctrine of the Trinity might be hard to understand, but it is the foundation for understanding how you are wired. From all eternity, God has existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. Bound in friendship love. There's friendship among the Godhead. Friendship was never created. There was, there was not a day when God said, let there be friendship. It's part of the eternal nature of God. There's never been a time in all of eternity when there was not friendship. And one of the theological weirdnesses of the Bible is found in the Garden of Eden. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. Think about that. It's quite an odd statement. Why would God look at something he has just made that no one has messed up yet and declare it 
to be not good. It's not good for Adam to be alone before sin entered into the world. Now that's wild because Adam wasn't really alone. He had giraffes and hippos and elephants. He certainly had dogs, black labs and German shepherds and little beagles. Now it's true he didn't have cats. They came after the fall. They, they were a result of the curse. They, they say a dog is a man's best friend. And a dog can certainly be loved, as many of you love your dogs. A dog can certainly bring you comfort, as many wounded vets have experienced. You can give a dog affection, and a dog can give you affection. But in the end, you have a craving for friendship that runs deeper and wider than that which a dog can provide. You need more than Charlie, the chocolate lab, and Stretch, the long-necked giraffe. God fashioned you in such a way that you couldn't even enjoy Eden without friends. Human friends. It's not good for man to be alone. But Adam wasn't really alone. He had animals. But he also had God. They took walks together in the evenings. God made you with a desire and a need to share life with other humans. Adam wasn't lonely because he was imperfect, but because he was perfect. The ache for friends is not a result of sin. Tim Keller says, and I quote, To need and to want deep spiritual friendships is not a sign of spiritual immaturity, but of maturity. It's not a sign of weakness, but a sign of health. If you are lonely, you aren't dysfunctional. You're fine. You're lonely because you're not a star. You're lonely because you're not a leaf. You're lonely because you're built this way. End quote. Plato's teacher Socrates said, I have a passion for friends. And I would rather have a good friend than the best horse or dog. I should greatly prefer a real friend to all the gold of Darius and even to Darius himself. I am such a lover of friends as that. Friendship is woven into the fabric of Imago Day. Our thirst for friendship is written, as we've seen earlier in our songs, but it's also written in our TV shows. In the 60s, it was Gilligan's Island, a bunch of friends doing life together after being shipwrecked. In the 70s, it was Happy Days, a group of friends doing life together in Milwaukee. 60s, 70s, I'll skip 80s and go to 90s. 90s... Friends, that was a show about a group of people doing life together in New York City. Also in the 90s, Saved by the Bell, a group of teens, no one? Saved by the Bell? Awesome. A, a group of teens going through life together in high school. There was a bunch in the 90s, Seinfeld, Martin, A Different World. A Different World was a, a group of friends doing life together in college. In the 2000s, it was the show Office, a show about a group of people doing life together at work. Uh, television can be like a needle to a hungry vein, giving the viewer a brief and intense taste of something he longs to experience. I told you I'd skip the 80s. Let's go back to the 80s and those wonderful hairdos. <laughs> the 80s, it was cheers. See beyond a bunch of dudes bellying up to the bar and see that it captures the longing in our hearts for a community of friends. What was the theme song? You got it. <laughs> 
Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. Friendships are the oxygen of the soul. We all want to hear someone say, you've got a friend in me. Today's text is about friendship and why you need it and how God designed safety measures in friendships to help you in your walk with Christ. There are two examples in the text, and then I'll give you some friend truths under each example. But we'll begin with the first example. I call him the friendless company chief executive. The friendless company chief executive. Notice verse 7 of our text. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Now, we stop here. We ask Solomon, what is vanity? What is it to be empty? And he's going to give you an example. Verse 8. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Solomon paints a picture of a nameless company chief executive who has no meaningful relationships of any kind. He doesn't have time for hobbies or friends to do hobbies with. He can't afford a social life. That may put a dent in his bottom line. He has no brother or sister or son or daughter or wife. Do you know why? Because that would get in the way of his work. He doesn't have time for Hallmark movies and baseball games. He's only got time for balance sheets and productivity reports. He's made it to the top of the ladder. But he's all alone up there. That's okay. He doesn't mind. The only friends he needs are his work and his money. He didn't get where he is by working 35 hours a week. He's career-oriented. He put in 50 hours, 60 hours, at times 75 hours. And people praised him because of it. After all, not, not a lot of people work hard anymore. Plus, no one ever drowned in his own sweat. He's working like a dog. He doesn't take breaks. He doesn't stop churning. He's the most productive man alive. His face is always buried in his laptop, obsessively checking his emails late into the night. This lifestyle apparently has been rewarding. He's amassed quite a bit of money, but he still has an unsatisfied organ. The eye. It doesn't matter what the online banking account says or the investment portfolio show. He's never satisfied, according to the text. You've heard of compulsive gamblers? He's a compulsive moneymaker. Oh, and he doesn't have a business partner either because he's not about to split the profit. What do you learn from this man? What do we learn from the nameless, friendless man? In the Christian life, two better than one verse 9 two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil this is a little proverb Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs but he has at least one proverb that isn't in that book because it's in this book and it goes like this two are better than one in the 1960s there was a band called three dog night and they sang Solomon's truth any of you ever heard of Three Dog Night? No. Oh, surprised. Well, someone in the back said, yes, offended. Yes, I have. I have. Someone, 
It happened in the first service too. Three Dog Night. Well, if you haven't heard of them, at least you've heard of Solomon's truth that they sing. One is the loneliest number that you will ever do. Now that's true in business. When two people work together, they accomplish twice as much. As one said, teamwork makes the dream work. But it's also true of every other sphere of life. It's certainly true of pastors. That's one of the reasons at this church why we have a plurality of pastors and not a single pastor model. It's true of soldiering. That's why they go out in groups. It's true of all monotonous jobs. You can have the worst task like bricklaying or cleaning toilets or scrubbing floors. But if you're doing it with a friend, it makes it enjoyable. In addition, two is a wiser number. Two heads are better than one. We learn truths from each example. And so I want to give you the first truth from this first example. I'm calling it friend truth number one. Two is better than one. God said so. This verse strikes back at the American individualism of our culture. It's a remedy to the infection that plagues the modern church. God built this proverb into you, and he built it into the Bible. In the Old Testament, God told his people in the Ten Commandments to love your neighbor as yourself. The Hebrew word neighbor is the same as the Hebrew word friend. Sometimes it's translated neighbor, and other times it's translated friend. Neighbor, 142 times. Friends, 42 times. Love your friend as yourself. Friendship is at the heart of the second great commandment. In the New Testament, we have a boatload of one another commands. Over 50 of them. Build up one another. Forgive one another. Bear one another's burdens. Comfort one another. And you can't do any of those unless you have close friends. Jesus died that he might create a community of one another's who have a friendship centered around the cross. Two are better than one in the garden, and two are better than one in the church. When you fall, you need someone to pick you up. Verse 10. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Now this, this isn't the old lady in that, in that commercial in the 90s. I don't know if you remember. I've fallen. I've fallen and I can't get up. Um, I saw a yeah life alert. I saw a, I saw a play on that where someone was making fun of it, and um, you know it calls the people, but then also she can pull out her earplugs, and then she can take you know listen to music, and then she can take selfies on it. Well, th this appears to be a serious fall. This is not a commercial, like falling off a ravine or a cliff, or possibly falling into a pit, and that leads us to our second friend truth. You need companionship. When you fall into adversity. The point of this verse is this. When you face difficulty in life. You need companionship. You need a friend. We all need a cheering section. Someone to help us up and dust us off after a fall. People that will push you. And encourage you. To keep going in spite of the fall. Maybe you've fallen on your face with a business venture. Or fallen into a parenting failure. Or fallen into a pit of discouragement. This has been a season in our country where lots of people have lost friends. They've ended friendships on purpose. Maybe over a mask. 
maybe over an election or a political candidate. Don't lose friendships over someone who will never know your name or even care to know your name. He will never call you when your mother dies or congratulate you when your child is born. If you have to break friendship with a professing believer, make sure it's over a gospel issue and not an emotionally charged cultural one. You need someone to provide you with gospel warmth. Verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now you may think of the marriage bed here when you first read it. And I guess it's true, you can cuddle up and stay warm, unless one of you have really cold feet. But the context here doesn't refer to the marriage bed, but rather outdoor sleeping with the moon overhead. Travelers would often spend the night outdoors, and if they were alone, they could shiver all night and wake up with frost on their beards. They didn't have thermal clothing or thick sleeping bags. Palestine was no stranger to cold, chilly nights. You may remember when Jacob fled from Esau, that he slept outdoors. Shepherds in this day would sleep with sheep to stay warm. And there was actually a saying among the Australian Aborigines that referred to freezing scenes like this. They called it, get this, a three-dog night. Now, I know I said there was a band, three-dog night, but there's also a phrase, three-dog night. And it meant that this was a night so cold that you would need to take three dogs to bed with you to stay warm. Well, God through Solomon's writing, says, I have a better solution. Two people can sleep back to back, and the body heat from the one body will radiate off the other to form a a human heater. You've seen that strong theological movie, uh, Forrest Gump, and the scene where it's pouring rain, and Bubba says, I'm going to lean up against you. You just lean right back up against me. This way, we don't have to sleep with our heads in the mud. That's the scene where they decided to go into the shrimping business together. You will go through some cold, rainy nights in your life. You will go through some cold, rainy nights in your life. And you aren't meant to bear them alone. During cold nights, you need friends who will give you gospel heat, gospel promises to warm you until the morning. And that leads us to our third friend truth. And it's this. You need companionship in your life when you're cold and lonely. There was a recent Gallup poll released. It's interesting because it surveyed the mental health of people from a certain time in 2019 to a certain time in 2020. And something happened in between that time. You can imagine the mental health has decreased. People increasingly feel mentally unhealthy. They surveyed a wide swath of people and then displayed the results into different categories. Gender, male, female. Party identification, Republican, Democrat, Independent. Race, marital status, age group, household income. And then a really unusual category called religious service attendance. Those who are attending corporate worship services. Every category decreased in mental stability from a year ago. Every male, every female, every Republican, every Democrat, every Independent, every race, Every marital status, every age group, every category decreased in mental stability except for one. Those who are attending church services. Now this is not a statement on if people are too anxious for coming because of the virus should be attending. It's a statement that simply says this. 
People need people. You need friends in person, in the flesh. Tony Morito pointed out that technology may aid in a relationship, but it can't replace it. You can't keep each other warm online. We have an epidemic going on, an epidemic of loneliness. In fact, the prime minister of England once announced a, a new government position. He called it the minister of loneliness. Now, it wasn't like he was to go out in the field and be by himself forever. No, he was to research and find out how to end the epidemic of loneliness. Each of you, if, if you have Christ, you have this glorious gospel, you are now made ministers of loneliness. You are to combat the loneliness epidemic. And this is a wonderful season to reach out to those who are lonely. In fact, the elders have a big old list of people who are lonely and need people to reach out to them. And who better than those who have the gospel? If you want to participate in that, let us know. Let some of the elders know. Write a, write a little note on your worship guide. There's just something about presence that combats loneliness. That's why hospital rooms have chairs that turn into beds. There's safety in walking through life with people. Verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. This is picturing a guy who's walking on a dangerous highway away from the safety of lights and authorities. This is very similar to the Good Samaritan story that Jesus told, the parable, about a man being beaten and left for the dead. And Solomon's saying here, if you're attacked at night by a thief or a bandit, he may overpower you. He may over, he can overpower, if you're not ripped like Kyle Sharon, he may over, no, that's in the Hebrew, you can't see that. He may overpower you, but if you have a friend with you, he couldn't take both of you. Is this not why we give instruction to our kids? Never walk on that street by yourself or a spouse. Never jog that trail by yourself in the dark. There is safety in numbers, two or twice as hard to defeat as one. Riken says two really are better than one. Better for work and for warmth. Better in times of woe and of warfare. Now notice Solomon has been using two a lot. You need two when facing adversity. You need two when you're facing the cold. But then he says a threefold cord is not quickly broken. What is he doing changing the numbers? Well, this is a teaching tool. Hebrew doesn't have exclamation points and italics to draw the, your attention to something. So the writer has to do it with poetry. And he's doing it with, with ascending numbers. Two, 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 two. Now three. It's gospel arithmetic. There's nothing innately magical about the number two. That's why he's saying three. Two friends together are good. Three together is even better. There's safety in numbers. That's why the enemy tries to drive you away from the pack so that no one has your back as you walk through the dark spiritual highway. Friend truth number four. You need companionship walking through this dark world. You were never designed to walk through this dark and dangerous world alone. You need a pal. You need a friend. You need a buddy. The buddy system is not just for middle school field trips at the zoo. 
or, or swimming in the deep end of the pool. Who has your six, spiritually speaking? Who is protecting you from sin and the beatdown that will inevitably lay on you? Who is pointing out sin on the monthly? Who is pushing you, checking up on you, asking where you've been? When facing darkness, you need the Word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and another child of God. Riken, one of my uh, favorite commentaries, commentators, wrote in his commentary about the movie Batman Begins. And, um, you know, 90% of what he writes is over my head, but I could, I could get this, right? <laughs> in it, there's a scene with an overwhelmed police commissioner named Gordon. And he didn't know what to do with the dangerous criminal organization roaming the streets of Gotham. And in the moment of exasperation, he says, I'm just one. And then there's a, a pregnant pause, and then Batman appears. And in his Daniel Hurd voice, <laughs> he says, now we are two. Now we are two. I'm just one. Now we are two. Even if you're not traveling a dangerous highway or living in Gotham City, you still face spiritual dangers every day. And when you're overwhelmed, not knowing what to do, you need someone to step up and say, Now we are two. Or maybe sing to you. You've got a friend in me. You need to hear it. First example, the friendless company chief executive. The second example is what I'm calling... The friendless old foolish king. The friendless old foolish king. Better was a poor and wise youth. Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Some scholars see three kings in verses 13 through 16. I only see two. The first king is a friendless old foolish king. And Kidner says he's been too long in the saddle. Has this story not been repeated throughout history in nations and in churches? Men hang on too long and refuse to give up power. Solomon says he no longer knows how to take advice. He doesn't listen to advisors. He's lost his intuition. He's saying things now that he would have never said in the beginning. He has no filter. He's isolated himself on the throne. He will not listen to friends. He doesn't have friends. He doesn't have a teachable spirit. We often hear that older leaders are wiser. And that's certainly the case often. But not always. It's not a guarantee that you will be old and wise. Sometimes you are old and foolish. Gray hair doesn't always equal apples of gold and settings of silver. Well, I, well I've got my old man card and I'll just push and get my way and say whatever I want. That's why you need friend truth number five. Find friends who will help you to avoid the sins of old age. Find friends who will help you avoid the sins of old age. D.A. Carson, my favorite Canadian theologian, recited a prayer that I want to give to you. I've adapted it a bit to fit our, our text, but this, this is the meat of it. Imagine this coming from a 73-year-old, aging, feeble man. Imagine him praying these words as Parkinson's shakes his whole body. And he prays, 
God, save me from the sins of old men. Save me from a tendency to look backwards and idealize the past. Save me from the temptation to resent younger men coming along. Save me from being too quick to turn on the television because I am lonely. Save me from insufficient intercessory prayer for my grandchildren. Save me from the willingness to trust the news instead of the good news. Save me from thinking I know better and not listening to wise counsel. Save me from the sins of old age. John Calvin, as he aged, prayed that God would give him a teachable mind. I read that prayer this week. I took a picture of this um, page in my notes when I was writing this exposition. I took, took a picture and sent it to my father-in-law because he's an old foolish man. No, I'm just kidding. He's not. He's a, he's a wonderful man. Um, but I, I thought he'd like this prayer. And he said, he texted me for a while after, and he said the first line hit him hard. Save me from a tendency to look backwards and idealize the past. Now in the text, we're introduced to a second king. The first was old and foolish. The second is wise and young. And we're going to read about this second wise and young king in verse 14. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace, king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Let's stop reading there. This young king goes from rags to riches, from a pauper to a prince. And the king, you know, who was he? Who was this young king? It couldn't have been Solomon because he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. His baby room was bigger than most of your houses. His bassinet was gold-plated, lined with the softest fabrics known to man. Definitely wasn't Solomon. Who was this young king? It could have been David. He went from a small farm to a large kingdom. But the prison part doesn't fit him. It could refer to Joseph who did go to prison and then was second in command to the king. But then he really wasn't the king. Or maybe even Daniel who was a POW but then rose to power. We don't know who the king was. Everyone in the passage is a mystery. What's not a mystery is how the masses supported this new king. They tired of the old king and they wanted revolution. They craved change and they were screaming for it. The text says there's no end to the people that flocked after the young king. Verse 16, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. This next word is key. Yet, yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is a vanity and a striving after win. The old king is gone, out with the old, in with the new, but notice that the fanfare for the new king will soon fade away. The throngs of people cheering him will soon be booing him. They were his friends, but now they are his detractors. Their friendship wasn't built around God's truth, but around cultural opinions. Few people know the vanity of a friendless life, like kings and elected leaders. 
In many countries, today's heroes become tomorrow's villains. In our text, today's heroes become tomorrow's trash. There never has been a king that hasn't been replaced. There's never been a president take office that hasn't been replaced. There's never been a coach on whatever team, Hall of Fame coach, that hasn't been replaced. Even the young and wise king could not rule forever. Friends, people come and go. Kings come and go. There's only one king whose fame will last forever. And that's King Jesus. The fickle crowds may praise or taunt, but he knows who are his. And he'll reign over them. Not as an old and foolish king or a young and wise king, but as an ageless and holy king. Now I have two closing applications. One is really practical and the other is really theological. The practical one is this. How can I make Christ-centered friends? How can I make Christ-centered friends? Some of you are lonely. You need them. How can I make Christ-centered friends? And, and you probably jump from place to place, blaming that place and never thinking it's on you. No, it's on you. How can I make Christ-centered friends? That's the practical one. The theological one is this. How does this text point us to Jesus Christ? Now, the practical application about how to make Christ-centered friends is going to be answered in the sermon review panel. I'm putting that off on, on the other pastors here. <laughs> now, they're, they're going to deal with that the entire time. We do a sermon review panel every Sunday, and then we put it up online at 4 o'clock. So you're going to see that question answered there. How can I make Christ-centered friends? Lots of practical, wonderful things. Many of you may have excuses of why you can't. All of those will be broken down and just... Wonderful help there in the panel. So check it out online at 4 o'clock. I will cover the theological application here. And that's basically answering this question. How do we get to Christ from this text? This text does not mention Christ. The name God is not even mentioned in it. So how do we get to Christ? Jerome saw Christ in verse 10 as the one lifting up the other who fell. Ambrose saw Christ in verse 11, the man warming the cold man. Matthew Henry saw the threefold cord as two human people wrapped up with Christ. Your relationship can't be broken with Christ if, if it's completed and bound in this threefold cord. So which one am I going to take? Uh, none of them. Okay, I don't think you have to go with any of those routes because they all kind of fringe on allegory. I, I think we can get to Christ this way. When Jesus said in John 15, Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, suddenly the whole world can now be understood through the lens of friendship. In the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve. Walking is, is a metaphor for friendship in the Old Testament. That friendship was broken because of sin. There's no way now for you. There's no way now for you to be friends with God. Or is there? Christ Jesus lost his friendship with God so that you could have friendship with God. That's the cross. 
In the Old Testament, only Moses and Abraham were called the friends of God. Now with the coming of Jesus and his perfect redemption work on the cross, all the redeemed, all those who have repented of their sins and trusted Christ, all the redeemed are now called friends. This gives new meaning to the title of today's exposition. The vanity of a friendless life. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.